Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Erica Landon and Ken Paulo at Walter Scott Wines. It's August 6, 2019. Thank you both for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Uh, let's start with the most important question of all, which is why wine? Why not? Why not? Fun. <laughs> I mean, anytime you can make a career in, in, a, in a world of you know fun and, and culture and celebration. A beverage of pleasure that taps into history, geology, agriculture, yeah. uh, economics. Uh, All of it. it. It really taps into so many different things. It's and it's an incredibly uh, dynamic uh, community, to be, community to be a part of. Yeah, definitely lucky in that respect. You know, how we got into the business is one thing, but being part of this Willamette Valley, which is really special and has some amazing people in it, uh, you, know, you mentioned that having interviewed a bunch of the pioneers, you know, for us we have a tremendous amount of respect for all of them and, you know, kind of feel it's our job to continue to build on that foundation moving it forward, whether it's for the next generation of people that find themselves in the wine business or for the kids of all the people that are currently in it, you know, mm -hmm. um, and building on that foundation can just be you know, exposing more of the world to the Willamette Valley or just continuing to push um, better farming practices and sharing ideas about how we can make better and better wine. Um, but yeah, it's, it's great. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing before wine and how you each got into the industry. Ah, uh, I get to go first. Okay. Um, well, uh, out, of, out of school, I was um, sort of in a, in a young, free, free part of my life and was working in restaurants mm -hmm. um, and I ended up working there are two really well more than that there's a couple of incredibly dynamic um, wine savvy restaurants that I ended up working in the first was with uh, the Cardi family at Gino's in Selwood which really started my interest in wine um, and then after um, um, deciding that I was in love with snowboarding and wine, I went up to Timberline Lodge and worked up there for four years alongside Jason Stolersmith, who is a chef um, at the lodge now and was the executive sue at that point. Um, and just completely, I ended up being the assistant wine steward, did all the, the dirty work in the cellars and learned as much as I could about Oregon wine, very Oregon wine-centric program mm -hmm. up there. And then Jason took a position working for the Ponzi family at the Dundee Bistro mm -hmm. and called me and asked me to apply as the general manager, which I did and ended up coming down to the valley and working surrounded in wine, whether it's winemakers or viticulturists and they're coming in with mud on their boots and they're talking about these Especially wines. Especially that restaurant. Yeah, <laughs> bringing in wines, you know, from their cellars and their libraries, talking about past vintages, talking about the future and it's very easy to be inspired. Mm -hmm. um, and during that time, uh, I sort of inherited a program, a wine program that had been developed by a couple of really amazing people, but there are wines on it that I didn't know. 
And um, one day I was in the restaurant um, helping to run the floor and waiting on tables and um, serving wine and had a question about uh, wine on the list that I thought I knew all sorts of things about but didn't know anything about <laughs> and um, was gently told that um, by a couple of really amazing women who I later got to know but um, went and told Jason what happened and he said that's that's uh, Veronique Druin and Isabel Dutart uh, <laughs> and I'm like well yeah they know more about French wine than I do uh, very embarrassed and at that point decided that if I was going to remain in this industry and take it seriously I needed to go and get education so I applied for the International Sommelier Guild, went through and got certified as a sommelier and um, then moved to Portland actually and started working at the Heathman restaurant mm -hmm. um, and then uh, 1001 and then started teaching for the International Sommelier Guild and during that time I was running programs for a number of restaurants and I had met him at the Dundee Bistro, he was selling and delivering me wine, and I thought he was really cute, so he had a lot of placements on the list, and that continued. He had a reasonable amount, I was also selling really good wine. At the yeah, time, you so were, yeah. selling wonderful wine, uh, and then I, I, that continued, We he continued to work with me in Portland at the Heath Minute at 1001, and then one year at IPNC, uh, we had some wine and made out. That's, that's, that's how that started. That's how that all got together. Yeah. Yeah. So you can go ahead and tell your history to that yeah. point, and then we can tell the Walter so, Scott uh, <laughs> from there forward. Uh, I also grew up in Oregon and uh, decided to go to school at uh, Western Oregon State, uh, initially for uh, physical therapy, and that didn't pan out. And by the fall of year five, I was pretty much just playing basketball and drinking beer and took a break, uh, got into restaurants and discovered wine. and decided uh, I really wanted to immerse myself in it. Mm -hmm. And while working at uh, a little restaurant in West Salem, uh, one of the servers there who was a very sharp guy, uh, knew wine really well and knew a lot of the producers. I mean, while working there, Russ Rainey from Evesham Wood used to come in, uh, Ron and Linda Kaplan from Panther Creek, Mark Voss from St. Innocent, uh, the Castiles. And so uh, I decided I wanted to be in wine and I, asked him, uh, told him I wanted to do this, and he's like, well, what part? And I'm like, well, kind of all of it. <laughs> he's like, that's not possible. I'm like, okay, fine. So <laughs> he introduced me to Mark Vlasic, and at the time, you know, a lot of a lot of wineries were bootstrapping it and, and loved volunteer work. So uh, you go and do some work for free, poured at a wine festival with him, and then I harassed him relentlessly for about two months about getting a job. Ended up working for him for 14 years, worked for an importer for 10. Simultaneously. Simultaneously did both jobs. Um, and uh, yeah, sold her wine for five years. And then finally in 07, uh, we got together and uh, yeah, emptied out uh, all 20 grand worth of our retirement and started uh, Walter Scott just before the economy tank. So. <laughs> Yeah, I sort of said, you know, what, what's your plan? What do you want to do with your life? I had made like a couple barrels of Roussan of all things. And uh, she's like, what are you gonna do with this? I'm like, I don't know, I'm working two jobs and pretty kind of semi-content with that. And uh, she asked, what are we gonna do? What do you want to do? And we just went went all in. Well, you, he, he had an idea. He had said that he had been sort of thinking about tossing around the idea of starting um, starting a winery and naming it after his grandfather Walter and his nephew Scott. 
or at least starting a, a brand a brand I guess. yeah and i said well that sounds like a good idea you know we have no money we <laughs> have you know have really no concept of what that means let's we but you know we had an idea about wine we had an idea about the oregon market and the buyers within the market we had strong relationships with and we knew how to sell it and we'd work with some great people and so we just uh really it was after a harvest of 08 uh there was a night when we were like this is all we want to do yeah and it was that that so we just emptied moment. everything all of it and we hired a um a really amazing woman friend of ours claire carver from big table farm her uh previous job was designing labels and yep. so we hired her and said this is here's his grandfather's flight wings he was a flight engineer for twa so we had his retirement plaque and his flight wings and and some labels that were inspiring to us yeah. and a couple of those were some that she'd actually done the redesign on so uh we've kind of been friends with them ever since but that was yeah and then we we had the huge fortune of having people in this industry believe in us and support us both with their um their energy and their knowledge and in some cases space so um jim anderson and patricia green at uh, Patricia Green Sellers, um, who are good, good friends of Ken's, um, offered us to trade labor for space. And so we did our first vintage there, made about 650 cases in the corner of the winery, um, bottled it up, sold it, turned around, got more barrels, got more fruit contracts. And yep. Ken was hired by Evening Land. Yep. Um, in like November of 09. Yeah. And uh, worked for them in 2010, 2011 alongside Dominic Lafon, Isabel Meunier, Ian Birch, Ryan Hannaford. Uh, An amazing rock star crew. Amazing crew. Probably learned, I do believe I learned more in those two years about winemaking and viticulture than I had the previous 10. It was great exposure, working with an incredible vineyard, um, and you know, they... And working really truly alongside of them and just different things, different, yeah, different techniques. Yeah, subtle things, details, etc. And you know, we were able to continue to double our production um, with no, we still were working our day jobs. I mean, I was obviously working for Evenland. She was consulting at a bunch of restaurants, teaching, teaching for the International Sommelier Guild, flying to San Francisco and back every Monday, same day. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we had this opportunity to just continue to build and build and build. Yeah, they gave the the crew at Eveningland gave us a platform to continue to trade labor for space. Essentially, like gave yeah. us the ability. I sell a to bunch of your wine. We get to use your facility and all work together, and we all became. I mean, the part of the crew in 2010 and 2011, we're all still like best friends. I mean, even some of our friends that worked harvest in 2010 or in Uruguay or in uh, uh, France or in Calgary. It was just like this really unique crew, and they've all and, been incredibly supportive. And that us. and that seller has launched some of some of the, I think very exciting young winemakers that are coming up. I mean, Absolutely. Will Hamilton at Violin Wines, um, yep. Thomas Sever at Lingua Franca, yep. Ian Birch, obviously, Archie who's Summit. now Archery Summit. Like, they they came out of that seller inspired with a knowledge of winemaking and an attention to detail that. I think will have a will have a huge impact in okay. the future. And for us, seeing them succeed is also super inspiring. Yeah. So, so yeah. So then we um, we were at Evening Land for 2010, 2011 harvest, and then they went through a large management shift. And at that point, Ken 
um, was no longer working for them along with, I think there was a big purge at that point of a lot of different key people in that business. And we needed a place to make wine and to go forward. And at that point we were making about 1500 cases of wine, again, still working full time. Um, and had heard that there was this facility in the Eola Amity Hills on Justice Vineyard. So we're on Justice Vineyard, which is owned by the Castile family. Um, they were, they had known both of us through our um, young careers. Um, and they believed in us. They had a number of people interested in this facility, and for whatever reason, they chose the two broke kids from <laughs> Portland. Two that were willing to move into the double yeah, wide? Yeah, there was a 1970s double wide on the property that was like camping with hot water, and I said, honey, let's move into that. Yeah, we and walked through it, and I'm like, there's no way we're moving in this. And she said, yeah, we are. Yeah, so we are. We it's the only way we could do it. Yeah. And so we, we moved into the winery, um, moved into the double wide, did some cosmetic fixes to it and um, we at that point sorry it's difficult uh, at that point Walter Scott um, we it was just Ken and I we had yeah. about 35 tons of fruit contracted to come in in the 2012 harvest yeah. we moved in in April April 30th um, and we thought we can sell and uh, we can sell every single drop of wine that we yeah. have. We, it's one thing we were, we knew how to sell wine before we made any, and I had this idea that, you know, when we moved in here, we had barrels, racks, fermenters, one tank. That's, that was about it. That's about it. <laughs> no, well, we had Pepe, the old forklift that was here, but no sorting line, no press, no pump, no power washer, etc. But we had no equipment to yeah. make wine. Uh, we thought we, we could. We bottled up our six, our Willamette Valley Pinot Noir, and we thought we could sell it all in a month and buy all of said equipment that we needed. Yeah. Which you know, in hindsight, is ridiculous. Completely, totally cash flow uh, insensitive. Yeah. Um, so we 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 are doing it. We're trying. We have our yeah. heads down. We're trying to sell every drop of wine that we have in this bottle. Is like late July. And in and I start saying to Ken, I think we need to rethink this plan. Maybe we need investors. Maybe we or, need to call some of our neighbors and see if we can process our fruit there and then and then bring it down. We had purchased a 1974 Wellness Press, yep. which was delivered in the middle of the night from Arizona, um, which was a beast, but it was great. We yep. all knew that there's great wine made in Wellness Presses, so we, we could press off fruit. Yeah, we had a um, press. So anyway, so so we said, well, you know what? What should we do? Had a couple of people that we that had reached out and said that they would be willing to invest in Walter Scott. Um, so we took some very good friends to lunch. Uh, or myself and Sue Steinman went to lunch. Um, she and her husband were partners in uh, Lipigen and Little Bird restaurants in Portland, and we had known them over the years. And so we knew they had investment history and knowledge and. So I said to her, you know, how do you structure an investor? How do you? We were looking more than anything. We were looking for like advice, advice and and like just had, had giving us an idea of what kind of information we needed to be able to present to an investor. And so we had lunch and we had a bottle of wine. And at the end of the lunch, um, uh, she said, "Why don't you ask Andy and I to invest?" And I said, "Watch out what you ask for." And she and she 
We both have slightly different recollections of it, but she went home and told Andy, we're investing in Walter Scott, we're doing this. I went she home went and- She went home and we're like, oh, what do we do? How do we ask them if she was serious or not? <laughs> right, it um, was that moment, yeah. So Labor Day weekend, 2012, we signed papers with them. They buy 20% of the company and we take all of those funds and invest in yeah. all of the equipment for yeah. sorting. We literally had uh, the distemmer show up like yeah. a week before free. I mean, we, we basically valued our 1,500 cases and they bought in 20% and that was exactly what we needed to buy all of our equipment. Some of it was, I drove and picked up our sorting line at Willa Kenzie Estate like a week before fruit and, started showing up. And they were, they knew who we were and they, they knew the wines that we were making and they were incredibly generous They've with. They've been drinking the wines at, at restaurants and they're just, they, they've been coming to the Willamette Valley for the Pinot Noir celebration since the late 90s. Yeah, since the 90s. So uh, they just were just incredibly supportive of our dream and and our vision and our harebrained idea. <laughs> and so that that fall, yep. literally Ken and I, with their help sorting and their help cleaning, processed 35 tons by ourselves. Um, we had a week's vacation from our day jobs to do it. I had just taken a new job at a distributor. And so we brought in all the fruit, and then we'd get up at four in the morning, work ferments, drive to Portland, sell wine all day. She'd consult. I'd pick her up. We'd come home and work until we were done. Yeah. So we so we did that, and then the the following year, um, in 2013, I got knocked up. I don't know how that <laughs> happens, but. I, I became pregnant and uh, Ken and I decided since I was going to look a bit like Humpty Dumpty when harvest came that we might need a little bit of help and we had a really um, very good friend who we'd worked with at Evening Land yep. Ken had worked with at Evening Land yep. um, that wanted to start his own label and yeah. wanted to find a place to do harvest and since we had people give us a platform to start Walter Scott by trading labor for space which yeah. is the only reason why we're here today yeah. um, that, and that a lot of people believe in what we wanted to yeah. achieve so we approached. so I went to I had heard Will wanted to do this and so I took Will out to dinner and Will Hamilton Will Hamilton uh, great guy he worked for Laurent for years Willamette Crossflow again he worked at uh, Evening Land uh, and then we went out to dinner drank a bottle of 2010 Thomas and I said, here's the deal, Will, you can, you're gonna work at our place and you'll make your wines there. And that's your only option. He's <laughs> like, I was hoping you'd say that. And so he worked with us for five years. Yeah, so in 2013, he had emptied all of his savings yep. into starting another one of those stories. Wines. And we all sat in the double wide and watched it rain. Seven for inches in five days. Five days. But. And uh, it was raining inside the double wide as well. Yeah. And I was pregnant and it was a little stressful. But yeah, we got it was, through was, it. We did get through it. There was a point though, you know, that year I had all of two weeks off to do harvest. And I timed it perfectly for right in the middle of the rain. Uh, but there was a point when it was pouring down rain and I was looking out and it's just dumping. And I go, well, we gave it a shot. And I, I honestly, there was a point where I was kind of doubted if we'd be able to make it happen and then the rain stopped and I think we did a really good job in 2013. I think those tougher vintages are exciting for winemakers because you can pull something out of nothing but yeah yeah it was one of those moments. In 2014 in January Lucy was born yeah and we made a decision at that point that we could no longer work our full-time jobs so 
um, we we Ken Ken left. He was at that point at Galaxy Wine Company. Yeah, working, working for, for a two of the best people in the wine industry. I mean, two guys, Bob Liner and Matt Elson, who had supported the Oregon industry while owning their wine shop. Uh, they were nice enough to hire me for a couple of years and put up with put up with uh, my a juggling a business, uh, juggling a business and everything. And uh, I went in to see Bob, and he's like. I said, I just can't do it anymore. And they're like, we get it. And they were incredibly supportive. And I still remember the email that Matt Elson sent. He's like, I think you guys are going to kill it. And you have all of our support. So yeah, that was and, pretty awesome. And then for I worked with Lucy for another eight months. And then yep. in October of 2014, I left my my role um, doing the wine programs for the BCR restaurant group yep. and Castagna. And um, we both took insane pay cuts <laughs> to do so but we were like this it has to happen for our sanity and for the yeah. winery like if the winery was going to survive it needed our full attention um, at that point we had we doubled production in one vintage when they talk about growing pains they are truly painful and at uh, 4,000 cases it just needed all of our attention sure and um, yeah so it's 2014 we were about 4,000 cases yep. um, and then the rest is, I mean, we've just continued to grow the business um, up until now where we're sitting at about 6,000 cases. We're not growing anymore. Nope. We're done. You know, we, we're, we're very fortunate. <laughs> you know, we, as Josh Bershman likes to say, land lust. You find vineyards that you have to have and I'm, and I'm done. Yeah. And work with, also working with great people. We're very fortunate. I mean, whether it's Justice or Seven Springs or Sojourner. Sojourner with Denny and T. I mean, Ex Novo. Ex Novo. With, yeah, I mean, we, we feel like we work with some of the greatest growers in the valley. Yeah. Um, and we're we're done. And 6,000 <laughs> 6, cases with vintage variation provides for the family and for uh, our partners. And for our partners, and we get to work with great people. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much it. And maybe a little construction once in a while. Fun, some fun projects. <laughs> There's uh, something going on here. Yeah. Do you have any questions? Oh, yeah. Okay. Lots of questions. But I was just going to let you guys go for a while. Because so. we can continue to ramble for a long time. That's, that's kind of, I mean, as far as history goes, that kind of takes us to... Well, to at now. some point we need to talk about Chardonnay and oh, yeah. that, that yeah. transition. Don't, don't but, worry, it's on, it's on the okay. list. Okay. I'm curious, first of all, though, when you, you both kind of you both kind of fell in, not fell into wine, but you both were kind of yeah. struck by struck by wine. Yeah. I'm curious what it was about wine, and when you first were kind of presented with it, that made it something you wanted to do for a, for a livelihood. And then you talk about learning wine. Tell me about the process of learning wine. Mm. Okay, so one of one of the first sort of cultural experience I had with wine, I was 21 years old, and I was living in a house of. Uh, women in Selwood, Oregon, working at Geno's, really starting to get into wine, working um, with the Cardi family. And I had a roommate. Um, all, everyone who was in the house, they were all going to college together, and I was working in restaurants. Um, and this roommate always had amazing wine, and she shared it with me and with all of us. Um, and so I, I kind of became somebody who she would drink wine with because I was getting really into it. And so one day she said, do you want to go out to my father's winery? And having absolutely no concept of what that means. You know, we never visited wineries when I was a kid. Wine was not a big part of the culture of my family. Um, 
alcohol in general wasn't. And so we rolled out to the valley um, and into the Dundee Hills and up to Archery Summit because her dad was Gary Andrus and she was Nicole Andrus and her sister Danielle was running Archery Summit. And so we hung out and drank wine on the patio, Veriton, if I remember correctly, on the patio overlooking the valley. And I thought, this is cool. Um, and in addition, this has got potential. This has got potential. And, and actually, a couple of friends of mine and I started trading labor for wine. So we would come down on the big open house weekends like Thanksgiving and Memorial Day um, and work with Archery Summit and take home wine. And, you know, again, that just kind of contributed to this lifestyle and this experience and of this celebration. I mean, a lot of the events were celebration. They were fun. There mm -hmm. were lots of people gathering around and, and geeking out about wine and sharing information. And there was just this culture about it that was very intriguing to me. And then as you get into wine and you start scratching the surface of what wine is, how it's made, the, the history of wine, the culture behind it, um, <laughs> it, it becomes absolutely it's so intriguing. I mean, when you go into the history of wine, you go all the way back to Mesopotamia. You go back to the Phoenicians. You go back to the trade routes in the Mediterranean and into the, the Catholic Church and, and how, I mean, all of these dynamic stories that I think are fascinating. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, how wine contributed to culture and to science over the years. And it's just, it's just, I've, I thought there was nothing about wine that ever got repetitive or boring. Every Stagnant. vintage is different. Every vineyard yep. is different. Every soil is different. Every winemaker is different. Their personalities. We both believe in the terroir, the human terroir impact, mm -hmm. whether it's Denny Peso farming his vineyard or the Williams family and, and Gavin's, you know, uh, energy into Ex Novo, whether it's, you know, the Castiles and seeing you know, Ted Castile rolling around here on a quad every evening checking the vineyard. Like, their energy goes into that site um, and contributes to the final wine. So I think that they're just, there's never a boring topic. And you can just go down any rabbit hole in wine and get stuck and yeah. keep going. Yeah. Sorry. So that's no, I agree completely. I think all, all of those things are the same reasons it, it was interesting to me. I mean, history, I mean, agriculture, chemistry-wise... Uh, the, the culture of it. I mean, having dinner with friends and sharing a bottle and deep diving into how it was made, where it was made, and you know, you, you look at, you put the vintage on it and you drink maybe one that's 10 years old and think about all that's transpired in those 10 years. Mm -hmm. They're like, almost like time capsules, mm -hmm. kind of like what you guys are doing here, but this is one that you can drink and think about all the things that have transpired uh, from the time it was made. I also, this is sort of a, a funny way of looking at it, but, you know, I was at the time in my life when I really was getting into wine, I was 21, 22, 23, um, had bartended in college bars um, where it's a very, like, party atmosphere. You're taking shots, you're drinking Long Island iced tea. It's like, what you're trying to do is get oh drunk. And w the wine, my experience with wine with Nicole and with going out to Archery Summit and then furthering that at the Dundee Bistro with the Ponzi family was that wine went beyond that. It was about, yes, you're drinking and there's still a buzz and a high that comes with drinking wine, but it 
goes so much more into your community, into the, the people that you surround yourself, the stories you're telling, the stories about the bottles of wine you're sharing, that just was a bit richer to me mm -hmm. than yeah. just taking shots at the bar. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, way, way more cool. Anyway, I don't know. You mentioned the, the support both of you got from the industry as you were trying to get started both in terms of uh, flexible schedules and in terms of people telling you you're doing a great job. Tell me a little, a little bit about that and, and what it told you but sort of about the Oregon wine community that you were entering into. It's very incredibly collaborative and supportive. Um, you know, as Erica mentioned, you know, we, we've learned, I mean, personally, everything we know about winemaking we've learned through the generosity of others uh, asking appropriate questions and people sh sharing and listening and participating in tastings and surrounding yourself with people that know people more that know you. more than you and it's a big long list of people <laughs> um, <laughs> Many and, of then, them. and then you know just just giving back but there were you know we had, we had both either sold Oregon wine or worked Pinot Camp or ran the Psalms at uh, IPNC so people knew us we, we knew a lot of people in the industry when we were selling and you know our first vintage was fine but I think we had some support and people bought our wine because they believed in us mm -hmm. so that was was huge so it, it, it's really I, truly uh, an amazingly collaborative supportive valley and, and it's not the rising tide floats all boats yeah. thing I think still exists yeah. um, and is is not just something that's just tossed around is Cliche. And it's not just about people saying, oh, you're doing a good job or, oh, you can do this. We believe in you. It's also people being brutally honest and saying, maybe you could have done that better. And yeah. this is maybe what I would have done and, right. and sharing their knowledge and information and pushing us to cr think critically about what we're doing and how we're doing it. Um, you know, for the first three years, we were working in cellars with people we trust trusted and we knew knew far more than we ever you know that we did at the time yep. um, and so there was this support system around us you know one of the most fascinating periods of Walter Scott I think was when we moved into the facility and yes for many of those years we had Will there and Will and Ken were both learning and they both look at wine in, in very similar yet also very different ways and so they push each other that way but having that fundamental support group oh, gone away mm -hmm. and watching Ken sort of go from sort of nervously making decisions about how we were going to make wine and what we were doing and and when we were going to pick and things and watching his confidence grow and his knowledge grow and have that shift to a place where he was driving the decisions were driven by the end result and ex knowing exactly what we wanted to do and where we wanted to go and his evolution was unbelievable thank you you're welcome i had a lot of support tell me about that ken tell me about feeling confident in your abilities as a winemaker and how that how that process happened well nothing chickens um you know i think as we you know I think more than anything, just the experience of the vintages. Um, and I don't know, it just, it just kind, of, kind of happened. I mean, as we did well and the wines were selling and people liked what we were doing, and again, people being brutally honest and tasting the wines and seeing them reviewed well and 
that our growers were really happy with what we were doing. Uh, and when people offered us fruit from sites, you know, a lot of vineyards, you know, a lot of the best sites are hard to get grapes from because it's all locked up. And when, you know, a guy like Die Crisp comes by or someone, you know, a vineyard that has a really good standing offers you fruit, that kind of gives you a little bit of confidence. But, you know, from the beginning, you know, we, we wanted to make wine for ourselves that we liked, that uh, fit what we like to drink, and along with that, show off all these amazing qualities of the vineyards we work with. In the valley. And show off the Willamette Valley. We, you know, we use, you know, Burgundy is a model for us, but we're not trying to copy. We want to, I mean, the Willamette Valley is one of the greatest places on the planet for cool climate varietals, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, etc. And our goal is to show those off and do our best to contribute to the foundation that's here and raise the flag of the Willamette Valley as being truly one of the great wine growing regions in the world. One of and the yeah, I mean, confidence wise, you know, when, when the wines are selling out and you're taking care of your family, it, that kind of fed into the confidence. But also, in addition to that, I think, you know, when we started Walter Scott, we started with a handful of vineyards that we were able to get fruit from. It was, you know, we couldn't get fruit in 2008. Actually, it was probably a good thing in hindsight. Yep. 2009 was our first vintage really sourcing our own fruit. We both knew we wanted to be in the Eola Amity Hills. We yep. both knew we wanted to focus on fruit from the Eola Amity Hills. Um, we had very clear understanding stylistically of the wines we wanted to make because of our history drinking wines from all over the world and the Willamette Valley and knowing what what was possible here and, and being inspired by producers here and around the world and so and having and kind we, of cut our teeth me specifically on Eola Amity Hills wines but really loving what this place offers and and as we were slowly able to get into better and better vineyards in the Eola Amity Hills and begin working with these growers, getting to know the sites. Mm -hmm. I think as we started working with sites for three and four and five vintages, you became more comfortable with them. You knew more what, about what to expect really from them. It was a guessing game. And, you know, luckily, too, we, I mean, we trust our growers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm not going to go in and tell Die Crisp how to farm his vineyard. He and I work together and I'll say, what do you think about picking? He's like, I think maybe another, you know, five to seven days. And we wait and we sample it. And now that we've got eight vintages under our belt at Temperance Hill, we have a really good idea of what we need there and an understanding in this relationship with and partners. I mean, and he, Di, understands what we're looking for when we're picking and yeah. we understand you know, what the vineyard can give as far as yields and, and how to, how it's, how it's evolution through the growing season is. And yeah, and that's, that helps you know, a lot. That, the multiple vintages within sites. Now we have, you know, we celebrated our 10 year anniversary vintage in 2018. And we have one grower we've worked with for nine of those vintages. Mm -hmm. uh, the rest of them, I would say we're almost seven to eight years and those multiple vintages all of them very different maybe a couple in there slightly similar but you just find this kind of rhythm in what you're trying to accomplish and it's definitely uh working together with those people yeah but the experience i think year after year you know and uh matt singer a couple years ago we were talking about 2014 and 2015 like two vintages very similar back to back. You're like, oh yeah, I remember that. When you have one that's completely different and it's separated by a number of vintages, sometimes you're like, 
how am I going to approach that? And sometimes, uh, like uh, Brian Marcy in the middle of picking in 2013, he's like, smell all of your fruit. I am uh, hydrating yeast, which I haven't done in years because I'm going to attack this vintage completely differently than I have. And I'm like, hmm, that's a really good idea. So uh, we went out and we were walking through vineyards and smelling the grapes for sour rot. So it's again, you know, getting advice and reaching out to people um, is, I mean, do it all the time. Yeah. The more you know, the less you know. And uh, in winemaking and viticulture and all of this, I. As Erica mentioned earlier, every vintage is different. There's always an opportunity to learn. You'll never know everything, ever, which is one of the exciting things about it. Yeah. You talked about your background selling wine before you started your own business, which obviously is a, a pretty big advantage for you given compared to a lot of people who get into the business. Tell me about the selling wine, especially, uh, sort of when you started versus selling wine now and, and, and how you attack uh, this crowded market. Selling wine, I think like selling anything is, is relationships and when you're selling, you're listening. I mean, you're obviously going to tell your story, but um, you know, for us, when we're talking about our wines, we're talking big picture down to us always and, yeah. and making it personal and, and listening and educating because that it's, it's an opportunity to share uh, if we're going to talk about volcanic soils and sedimentary soils and weather influences and, and why Eola Hamby Hills is different than Dundee and why are these characters different, uh, education is a huge part uh, of selling. Um, but again, it's you know, a lot of the selling I did was I was never the hard sell guy. You know, it's like, hey, so what are you going to take? I'm like, I hope you liked everything. I'm going to go now. And then you just build up trust over time. And again, it's it's all relationships. I also think too, when we're showing our wines and talking about the Willamette Valley, we're talking up about we're producers talking about that producers we admire. That we also, we're talking about other producers in the valley that are inspiring us and other people. Go ahead, you're good. That are you know continuing to push the valley forward, and and so I think it's never been. Neither one of us have ever approached sharing our wines with you know, buyers and consumers as brand Walter Scott, brand Walter Scott. It's always been the Willamette Valley, this community, those who have influenced us, those who've inspired us. And yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's very conventional and maybe it's not smart or it is smart. I don't know, but you know, for us, it's what, it's who we are. And, um, and so, and in the, the industry and and the market is crowded, but I don't know. I feel like, you know, we're true to the wines that we make and we're, we are very supportive to the people that support us and I'm very thankful and grateful and, and hopefully that, that translates to support long term. I don't know. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So far, so good. Yeah, not come with. What have you seen in terms of the change of the like recognition of Oregon and Willamette Valley as, oh, you're, as you're out selling wine? It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, uh, we are all in this industry incredibly fortunate to have the vision of the group of wineries that started the International Pinot Noir Celebration and Oregon Pinot Camp. The work that they did to develop the reputation and the marketing efforts that they put across to put this valley on the map. Um, I mean, I, immeasurable. Yeah, I as mean. a buyer, I went to education seminars in California and Africa and Australia, and 
what the what the Oregon Pinot Noir camp has done to share what's special about this valley and translate the industry and the camaraderie is second to none. Yeah. And we're very grateful for that. Yeah, there are there are in there are regions that <clears throat> try and copy Pinot Camp because it's so good. I, I also um, Go ahead. Well I was just gonna say I think that the Willamette Valley Winery Association as well is in a, is at a place where it is you know, with with the work of the auction, again, started with a group of people giving uh, a platform of financial resources to the Willamette Valley Winery Association to continue to grow and push the envelope and educate yep. um, and spread and the world. this valley promote. nationally and internationally yeah. is, is incredible. And that, again, that camaraderie of all those people in this valley giving up and donating special lots so as to essentially just hand over and help create funds so as this body can go out and propel this, I mean, 54 years into the Willamette Valley or Oregon wine industry and we've just scratched the surface and um, the sky's the limit. Yeah, I think we're, we're fortunate Willamette Valley where it's positioned right now in the market. It's the most exciting time ever in the Willamette Valley and again, it's just getting started. There's so many there's new plantings going in, people are exploring different varietals, I mean, winemaking practices, etc. Um, events and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a special place. Yeah. You talk about your vineyard suppliers and the, and the relationships you've built. Tell me a little bit about what you're looking for in a vineyard. Why the old Amity Hills spoke to you as the place you wanted to grow your grapes and, and how you sort of build those relationships with places like Temperance Hill and other spots. Well, some vineyards have come our way, but we're also uh, pretty tenacious when it comes to getting grapes. If, if harassment, harassing. If, if there's a if there's a vineyard and we think it's special, we're gonna let you know, and I'm going to keep asking for fruit. And you know, the Old Amity Hills has just something. There, you know, obviously the the Venduser quarter effect is, is huge. Uh, but but the wines here, there's a certain tension and precision and, and freshness that, that we really crave. Um, you know, as far as sites go, you know, we look for great growers, organic farming, and you know, when we get into non-irrigation, non-irrigated farming. I think you know, as as we move forward, one of the things that this area can do is farming without irrigation mm -hmm. and I think as we get warmer and drier you know non-irrigated vines and them getting older now on appropriate rootstocks will help us deal with climate change which is a reality um, but you know again the growers that we work with you know whether it's you know new one like Kevin Chambers or Denny Peso um, we're gonna work together with them to farm to the highest standard um, Organic, I think, will ultimately just become a baseline and understood. Mm -hmm. I think it has to be. Um, and then from there, we, we work with them and are willing to pay so that they're profitable and uh, that they, our, our vision is shared. Mm -hmm. um, I would just say that, you know, one of the, it, it's not fun to micromanage anybody in their own site nope. or to struggle on decisions in the farming if they if they don't share a vision so 
we've learned over time that you know you want to align yourself with people that have the same qualitative and environmental goals as you do absolutely um we want a partnership that is very very long term as ken said and so you know we are very very willing to pay the growers um what their fruit is worth mm -hmm. and so they're and also we prefer acreage contracts so yep. that they have a consistent income from their blocks it's also and, a shared risk against you know yeah. mother nature being mean and she can be very mean some years and you know if if if, if mother nature gives them a ton per acre and you know we they don't they can't cover their costs if they're selling it to us by the ton that's where acreage comes in and you have to look at it long term and yeah. almost 10 year increments because over those 10 years if, if you're short one year and then long one year then it all balances out mm -hmm. but uh, everybody has to win and you know we we contract for all of our fruit we did lease a vineyard for for six years with all of that free time we had between 2011 and 2016 which was also a great learning experience but yep. um you know we get if we could work with the vineyards we have right now for the rest of the time we're in business, we're set. We'll be very lucky people. We'll be very lucky people. Yeah. In addition to Pinot Noir, obviously you guys are pretty well known for Chardonnay. So tell me about Chardonnay and the evolution into, into Chardonnay. You want to go history? I am. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, you know, Chardonnay. Well, I think if you look at the world of wine, anywhere where Pinot Noir is planted. Yep. In the in the greatest regions of the world where Pinot Noir is planted, Chardonnay is planted next to it. And, you know, from that perspective, it was, um, it always was a little bit, like there were, there have always been producers that took Chardonnay very seriously, that made great Chardonnay. But as a whole, our region wasn't focused on Chardonnay. And when we started Walter Scott, we knew we wanted Chardonnay fruit, but for the first three vintages, we couldn't find any that was farmed well, that was yeah. insights that we wanted, yep. two vintages, whatever. Yeah. Um, but, and what we really found is that we had to go into, we had to find places that had Chardonnay, hopefully with some age and in, in the right places, planted mm -hmm. in the vineyard in the right places, because that wasn't always the case, and then pay them to farm it more in line with how they were farming uh, Pinot Noir. Because if you look historically, you know, when Oregon was planted with grapes in the 60s and 70s, it was over 60% white varietals. And then the economics pushed them out mm -hmm. and everything became focused on Pinot, which is understandable. Mm -hmm. So for growers to feel comfortable planting Chardonnay in some of their great sections of their vineyards and to farm it to the same level, mm -hmm. then they need to be paid for it. Mm -hmm. And there was an incredible landslide about probably 10 years ago where people started really going after Chardonnay fruit, which helped push the cost up, which allowed the farmers to farm better and plant it in the right places. And all of that is coming around to some of the most exciting fruit coming into the winery yeah. that we've ever seen and probably many people. Um, and so it's been this, this, I think, evolution with both Walter Scott, but then also the industry at the same time. Yeah. Um, and we started making well, our first vintage of Chardonnay we made. 2011, we made 140 cases. Yeah. We had two 500 liter barrels and a topping keg. Yeah. Uh, for 20... 2012, we ended up getting some Freedom Hill, which was exciting. Freedom Hill, and, and slowly, like, 
you know, at Freedom Hill, uh, they had some fruit come available. I went out to meet Dan Duchet, one of, for me, one of the legends of this valley farming-wise. And uh, he had one acre left of Pinot Noir. I went out to meet him, went cruising through the vineyard. He's like, I got this acre of Chardonnay, just name your price. That's kind of how it was still. <laughs> and that's just in 2012. I mean, the, the landscape for Chardonnay has definitely changed pretty dramatically. And uh, now we get five acres from them. We will make... Of Chardonnay. Of Chardonnay. Uh, we, our production of Chardonnay is now uh, 3,200 cases from 2011 at 140 now to 2018 at that much. We'll be about 60, 65% Chardonnay this vintage. Yeah. yeah. And that's, you know, you say that, and, and the, the Oregon has a couple of things, you know, events. You know, there's the Oregon Chardonnay celebration, mm-hmm. which Paul Durant and I um, and a group of people sort of the harebrained idea about and started in 2000 and well, that was 2011 as, as the ball I think. Was, was beginning to roll um yeah and then and then you had the chardonnay technical tasting that came along right at the same time mm-hmm. so you have david alshon sam Tannehill. they all start you know getting as eric chardonnay is not new it's been here and there were people that were very committed to it there's just you know there was a point where you know i think there was chasing trends for sure, you know, big, buttery, oaky, that's not what we do here. But I think there, people, palates shift and change over time, and I think there's been this groundswell of purity, transparency, freshness, and those are things that Willamette Valley can do even in the hottest vintages with Chardonnay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think there's, better and better plantings. As Erica mentioned, there's better and better farming practices, putting it in the best spots in the vineyard. Um, and, you know, we've said it again and again, and I'm sure people are tired of hearing us say it, but we believe this is the best place for cool climate Chardonnay outside of Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that are committed to it. Yeah, we're going to be 60-65%. There's a handful of 100% Chardonnay wineries in the valley. Uh, some of them are very good friends of ours. Um, but, you know, attention to detail and technique and, and, and really focusing on Chardonnay in the cellar. Uh, again, it was, there was as much attention to Pinot Noir in the cellar as in the vineyards. And now more and more people are like, again, with the Chardonnay technical tasting, thank you, David Adelsheim, sharing ideas on how we can make better and better Chardonnay. Yeah. And putting our wines out there with each other, talking about what we're doing farming practices, when are you picking, all this stuff, and really trying to define, when people think about Willamette Valley Chardonnay, what is it they're going to, is there a few signatures that you can expect? Mm-hmm. And I think we're, we're, we're still working on it. We're just scratching mm-hmm. the surface, just but starting. the potential is, I don't know, it's through the roof. I think we are, have, um, tremendous opportunities with that varietal here. So the, what has been the reaction of the market to Chardonnay? Because obviously, like you say, Chardonnay to people means something wholly different than what you're making here in Oregon. So how has that evolved? The, for us, uh, the reception has been fantastic. Uh, people seem to like what we're doing. Um, again, we... And the reactions have driven the shift in our production. Have also I mean. driven the shift. We also love 
drinking it and making it. I yeah, mean, we drink a lot of white wine. We drink a lot of white wine. I think we probably drink more white wine than red wine most days. Not, I mean, if we're going to drink red wine, it's going to be Pinot Noir, plug, plug. Or Nebbiolo. Uh, Nebbiolo as well. But we, I mean, we drink wine from all over the world, but um, definitely the, the market and then people, you know, wanting more of our Chardonnay in the market. And, you I know, we've had vineyards planted just for us and are able to work with what we feel are some of, you know, again, some of the best Chardonnay plantings in the Yola Amity Hills. And collaborating, you know, we get fruit from justice and Ben Castile and I pick it at the same time and have different approaches and get to talk about what are we doing and how can we do it better and, and the things that we find yeah. uh, in what we're doing. And, and it's, it's, it's really ultimately just, just little tweaks in helping to, again, show off what the place has to say through mm -hmm. the wine. I mean, 2017, we made nine different Chardonnay. It's probably too many, and she's like, that's way too many labels, but I think, you know... This is the negotiation of being in a marriage and yes. a business together. And you taste through all the wines together, and I might like one barrel, she might not like that barrel, and we just work on it. Negotiate. It, it's, you know, it's, it's <laughs> truly, it is, there are times tasting through all the barrels together, it's, you know, it sounds like, oh, you're tasting wine all day. It's like, it's actually work. <laughs> And, you know, it's, it is uh, a lot of fun, though, when, we, um, when you take a site, you've got 30 barrels of a particular wine, and you go through and you're like, these 15 barrels really show off what this thing it has to say, and working on it together is pretty fantastic. You've talked about this a little bit already, but tell me how you would describe your winemaking philosophy, and then maybe like the overall philosophy of Walter Scott. Mm. Well, uh... So I mentioned we made nine different Chardonnays, five of those were single vineyards. You know, our goal is to show off these amazing places, these individual terroirs and everything that exists there plus the energy of the people that farm it and planted it. To that end, we, do we don't make wine by recipe. We make subtle changes every year depending on the fruit we've received. Every vintage, every, every vineyard, vintage. every... And it's, it's just Fermenter. little things, pressing a little bit lighter, starting your hard press a little bit sooner, uh, more whole cluster here, not there, maybe we inoculate, maybe we don't. Generally we don't, so as to have that purity of place, but... Um, but you can't back yourself into an ideolo ideological no. corner. Yeah, and you can't you be can't dogmatic say, about something. I, I only punch down, or I only pump over, or I, I inoculate, or I don't inoculate, because Mother Nature is gonna throw you a curveball, and if you're not, Flexible, Ready. Yep. then then I, I think that flexibility in in that sense is really important. Yeah, there's no, I mean, there's no hard fast rules for us. We just, what did the vintage give us? What did our vineyards give us? What is the best thing we can do to show off both in a way that ends up being delicious? Well, because in the end, that's the most important thing. I think also going back to you know we talk about. Chardonnay is one of the great trans you know, translators of, of place, as is Pinot Noir. And so, you know, we work really closely with the growers throughout the year, try to get the best fruit we can um, in this valley, and then celebrate what they, what they did and their sites. And so it's, there's a little bit of, you know, trying to coax that fruit forward to showcase what they their work their that site yeah. the intricacies and and 
uniqueness of each different yep. site and then you know not mess it up yeah you know the the old adage of the hardest for a winemaker hardest thing for a winemaker to do is nothing do you just have to pick your spots and so you know it doesn't make itself but you you find those moments where you need to jump in and, and help get to the finish line and mm -hmm. you know Pinot Noir I think you have maybe a little bit more wiggle room I think with white wines because they are white you have no tannin there is no color uh, they're truly transparent everything you do to it is magnified a hundred times so it, you know really kind of paying attention to it but not over making it um, we do however with every single barrel of Chardonnay uh, check uh, temperature and how it's progressing during fermentation by checking specific gravity every, every day. day on every barrel. It doesn't just sit over in a corner and just ferment and then we just take care of it later while we're focused on Pinot Noir. We make sure to have time or dedicate time with our small crew to both because they're both equally important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think for us to, um, you know, because we like to work with ambient yeast, um, it's imperative to have an incredibly clean winery and, and then to be very on top of the ferments. You know, you're, while we're not manipulating them, we are in them every day, smelling them, and then you, you're, it's very clear if something's struggling and needs your help. Yeah. And so making sure that you're hyper-vigilant, hyper-vigilant and, and cellaring and, and, and yeah. elevage. And, every little detail and you know fermentation uh pinot noir i mean we're checking it every day we're tasting it every day we're making individual adjustments i mean i might have two fermenters of freedom hill i might punch one down one day and then do a pump over on that the same wine that's the immediate fermenter right next to it just because they're asking for something different mm -hmm. yeah. um so again it's a there are all your kids out there in this cellar and they're, they all need a different touch. One might need a timeout, one might need, you know, something else. But it's, again, yeah, we don't... One might need a birthday party. Or, or a pony, whatever. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's pretty much the philosophy. I mean, there's no recipes, no rules. We, uh, if, if we do have a challenging vintage, that's one of the great... Um, things about 2013 which was very challenging uh, we had some things happen by going native yeast ferment and if I have a, a vintage like that again I will inoculate everything um, so one of the other things when we started Walter Scott you know we talked to each other because you know being that we've been in the industry for a long time and and um, and not just Willamette, but in different aspects and saying, you know, we never ever want to make decisions based on finances or money um, because we have one shot to make a first impression and we have, you know, we're, we don't have a huge, you know, bank account behind us where we can just say, oh, you know, we have to sell every single bottle of wine every year to have this business move forward. Mm -hmm. And we're very lucky that that's happened to this point, but we, we can't say, oh, well that wine's not showing well, so we're gonna put it in the cellar for two years and then bring it out later as a library wine. We can't do that. We don't have the flexibility financially. We don't also have the space, but so make, never making a decision based on marketing or financing and 
you know, if, if we make a single vineyard, it's because that single vineyard speaks of that site and speaks of that vintage and it makes the cut. Mm-hmm. Not because we need another wine at that price point to, you know. In 2013, we had uh, a number of barrels that tasted like really, really good Pinot Noir, but they didn't taste like the place they came from. So we massaged a bunch of that into the reserve cuvee, which we made a really delicious Pinot Noir representing the valley, but you know, the, the single vineyards didn't really speak of where they came from. So, you know, yeah, we gave up mm. 300, 400 cases of $55 wine to our $35 wine, but it's just the integrity of what we want to do, you know, for, for ourselves and for, our, for what we feel Walter Scott represents. I mean, we want to make sure and make sure that when we put Sojourner or Freedom Hill or Temperance Hill, that it speaks to all of their efforts and everything that place has to say. You talked a bit about earlier about uh, IPNC, Oregon Pinot Camp, things mm-hmm. like that. I know both of you have been involved with those organizations. So tell me a little bit about um, what industry organizations you've been a part of and, and sort of why that was important to you to be a part of. Mm. You start, you go back farther than I do. So <laughs> my first IPNC, uh, I got to go as an attendee. Uh, it was summer, I think, 96. Uh, I was working for, it was 95 or 96, I can't remember. 95. We were tasting 93s and 92s. And uh, I went as an attendee and with St. Innocent, and then um, uh, a couple years, like I said, the next winter I was working for a restaurant, uh, Morton Seastro in West Salem, mm-hmm. and Mark Fache, who used to run the Psalms at IPNC with Randy Goodman, a uh, legendary Psalm in Portland, uh, was like, hey, you should come just come work and so I ended up volunteering and being in the Psalms and loved that side of it and giving back that way and um, you know all the attendees share all these amazing wines with you and in some cases you might taste as much or more because you're with all the serving you're tasting the wines before they go out and it was just an amazing event and I just found it more fun to volunteer and give back ended up running the maitre d's for a while and then took a break um, Pino Camp, I always worked it because my boss at St. Innocent was one of the guys who helped organize it and set up some of the, uh, the educational programming and so you just you just volunteered and it was it was a killer event. You met a lot of amazing people and um, you know again it just goes to the idea of giving back and having respect for this industry that we wouldn't be able to be a part of if all these people hadn't like given up everything they have uh, in order to build it up from nothing. I mean, you look at the industry now and where it started. I mean, they they created something out of really nothing, and so giving back is is really easy. And, and you know, Eric is, and it's super important. Um, it's hard when you don't have staff. Um, you know, we we. You know, but if David Adelsheim asks you to be on a committee to help uh, plan the Chardonnay technical tasting, you say yes, and it's really easy to do um, <laughs> because uh, it's important. Yeah. Um, you know, Eric is on several boards, and and you also again the collaborative thing that goes on when you're on some of these boards and talking with people when you're when you're doing the work. 
and trying to plant you're also talking about things that are happening in the valley things that you're you know may have learned from previous vintage etc so there's still again that opportunity to learn which there's always opportunity mm -hmm. yeah. so uh, it's giving back learning and uh just con again contributing to the foundation that is is here um yeah, yeah so i actually funny story Ken's last IPNC as a Mater D was 2002. 2002. Yep. My first IPNC as a Mater D was 2003. And Hot, uh, one of the hottest summers ever. Oh my God. I think it was 103 at IPNC. You're welcome. Yep. yep. Uh, and it was, you know, it was an incredible event where you get to meet some of the best and the best in the Oregon trade and taste wines from the best producers around the world and meet people and essentially act as a concierge to this valley for the thousands of guests that are in town. Um, and so I worked that event, I think until 2011, um, and just, it was an honor, mm -hmm. really. Um, and so again, you, you work, working a floor, working service is sort of like going to war. And you're going to war together as a team. You go out there, you give it your all, you're putting out fires, you're helping people, you're... And so some of the Mater D's at IPNC are some of our best friends and yeah. um, continue to be and hopefully will be for the rest of our lives. And we've gotten to watch some of them start their own wineries and grow into different positions in the industry. And, um, and then I also... Uh, I was able to attend OPC when I was a sommelier, but I never worked the event. Um, oh, too. O2, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then um, I did volunteer for a number of years for Salud Wine Auction mm. and um, helped run the, the wine service for Salud Wine Auction a couple of years for Classic Wine Auction and just different ways. I think, you know, these all of these events are very important for our industry and in our community, and so we've done what we can. And now that we're in this role, we try to... Um, to support as many different organizations and charities as we can with our limited, you know, budgets. But I think, you know, being able to support Salud and support um, the Lutheran Family Services and the Willamette Wine Auction, all these different things, it's really, we have to do it. We need yep. to do it. So, and it is, like he said, we both are so honored about being part of this industry that it is very important for us to donate our time to these boards, to these committees, to help push forward into the future. Mm -hmm. And it is hard as a small winery. And it's, you know, when if you're not there, that means he's not working in the cellar because he's hosting a tasting appointment or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it, it needs to happen. And also I think that these associations and boards and committees need the smaller winery voices, mm -hmm. even though it's very difficult for this, them to participate. but. Anyway, so that's always been our feeling. Yeah. You touched on it earlier, but I'm curious the the background to the name Walter Scott. Oh, um, uh, grandfather Walter, uh, nephew Scott, and around probably 2002 when I was kicking the idea around. Uh, for me, it was kind of a tribute to family and all those that helped mold who we are. Um, you know, we could have named it. Uh, Ken and Eric, a winery, but that was just what, that just isn't who we are, and it was more like kind of an homage to everyone 
by naming it after some family that was really inspiring. Mm -hmm. And so... And we've continued continued that. I mean, we have a Cuvayam, which is named after my mother because... She, and her. It's her middle name. She never says that. But uh, We do Cuvay Ruth. <laughs> yes, it was a tribute to a couple of tenacious and inspiring ladies. And then... Cuvay uh, Ruth, Cuvay who's Ruth. named in honor of Sue and Andy. It's Sue's mother saying thank you to them for believing in us. And yep. we had a... We had a wine um called Bacocho, which is the beach in mexico where my father lives and yeah, um the, the, the business the business name is okp llc which is a, a tribute to his father and grandfather um yeah. uh, so there's like little pieces of family everywhere the yeah. whole business and Cuvée lucille <laughs> which we donated to the willamette valley winery association auction for a couple years and then decided to uh bring that one back into the family and uh not so we came up with a different uh, donation. But yeah, there's all kinds of little tributes to family throughout. And what do you see in the future for Walter Scott? You talked about not growing anymore. No, we, I mean, we, obviously the production, we want to keep in that 6,000 case range because we want to, we want to make wine. We don't, I mean, we, we need help doing what we do. Mm -hmm. We have some people that we hire every year to come and work for us. Essentially, we have one employee, Jess. I don't uh, call her an employee. One, she's an intricate she's a, part of this. She's a, she's a partner in the business who is, she's family. She was yeah. one of Erica's students. She was one of the first people to support our wine. She's, she was at our wedding. Uh, she is, she's part of the family. And then, then we have Andy. Um, but 6,000 cases, we want, we want to make wine, not manage wine being made. And I think you get to a certain production level and you, you may not get to do that and be as intimate with it. And we, we want that. We want to pijage our fermenters. We want to check the temperature and density on our barrels. We want to post our, post own, our own appointments and tell our story and have that personal relationship with our customers, our growers, our retailers distributors and you know we, we we joke about it but we think it's true i mean i tell some of our customers i we're like we hope our daughter is selling your kids wine someday if that's possible great if not but it's it's something that we we definitely think about and you know that production level uh, we hope to be on this piece of property forever. We have let the Castiles know that we have no intention of leaving ever. They have to take us out with a crowbar. <laughs> you know, we want to continue to give back and contribute and learn. My um, biggest goal is to be content with what we have. Yeah. And to be satisfied with where we're at. And I think it's very easy to get starry-eyed and, and lose sight of... of how great it is what you've got and yeah and, and the idea of more yeah so I, I think having you know becoming as a family content also having a bit more a balance with family and business mm -hmm. is a big Huge. goal for yeah. us um, which is we're still trying to figure out but we're getting better at um, and then I think obviously right now we don't own any land and it is definitely our dream to have some land. And so in the next couple of years, we would like to, to buy a vineyard. Yeah. And so something, that's something existing that someone had had great intentions or is maybe decided to retire, et cetera. And then take uh, their dream forward, take their dream forward and, and build upon it and um, take it to the, the next highest level that we can. Um, 
but planting something, I think there's, I think just finding a really good established piece would be our perfect scenario moving forward. So. Yeah. What, are the yeah. what are the changes you've seen in the Oregon wine industry since you've become a part of it? There's so many. So many producers, uh, so many exciting things. Um, so much land being planted, the development, uh, pushing the envelope on, 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 on farming practices, sustainability, biodynamics, organic farming. Uh, I think, you know, you, it's really, gosh, I think that really took hold with guys like Kevin Chambers and Doug Tunnell and whatnot, really, I think you have to, didn't really think organic and biodynamic farm until mid to late 90s mm -hmm. and you know again it's something that you know, I think ultimately organic farming will just be a standard should be a standard for everyone in this valley you know there's a lot of influx of new new producers new money mm -hmm. new development and I think it's exciting you know I th I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about it you know I think that having having larger producers that have a lot more resources for um for many things mm -hmm. is not a bad thing yeah. um you know i think the heart of oregon you know the heart of oregon's industry is the collaboration yeah. and i think that larger producers and smaller producers need each other in a lot of ways yeah. and complement each other in a lot of ways and as long as we're all working together and you know everyone's voices are being heard, yeah. I have a lot of a lot of excitement and hope for the future. Absolutely. And competition's a good thing. Yeah. You know, it it's it's gonna be better for the consumer, it's gonna be better for farming practice and, and everybody wins. I mean it's going to challenge you and it's going to make everyone make better and better wine. Keep pushing. And keep pushing. Yeah. And our standards can do nothing but you know continue to get higher. We've been, I think, lucky too that a lot of the, a lot of the new producers coming in have been very thoughtful about what the organ industry is, and have and contributing and contribute quite a bit and want to be part of this incredible community yeah. that exists. So I hope that continues, you know, yeah. but who knows the future yeah. is very unknown. Yeah. <laughs> so I won't ask you about the future then, since you say it's unknown. But I will ask you what concerns you have as you look ahead for Oregon wine. Um, mm. you know, I. I think that um, I think that I think my biggest concern is that land prices can continue to inflate to a point where the smaller producers can't uh, afford to buy their own piece of this industry. You know, yeah. talking to those families who bought in the 80s and bought even in the early 90s, and they, you know, sort of pat you on the back and say, God, I don't know how you guys are going to make this happen yeah. and make it economical because it's so, it's a big chunk. And so I, that's what I worry about is just that, that it'll get to a point where it'll, the buy-in will be so high that it will be cumbersome for small mm -hmm. people that like us didn't start with a fortune that are starting with, you know, you know, earning their stripes and other sellers and following their dream. And I yeah. just hope that we all can we cannot be, solidify our place in this industry and in in the valley with our own vineyards and, and move forward. But yeah, yeah, that's probably the biggest concern. That's my biggest concern, and I and you know I think that 
I hope that the people coming in are really thoughtful about the way they're farming and the impact it has long term. Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, that's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say about that. What advice would you have for someone who wanted to enter the industry today? Oh, follow uh, your dreams. Follow Work your, dream your ass and, off. And talk to other people that are in, in the industry and, and ask right. questions. Yeah. You know, we had, we worked with, with the vineyard and, you know, they had ideas about farming their own vineyard and, and, and what they should charge for the fruit and this and that. And we're like, go talk to other people in your community. Talk to them. Figure out what you need to do and what you want to achieve and what, what are your personal goals with your brand. Do you just, do you just want your, your name on a label or do you want to like, farm someplace biodynamic and plant, you know, selection of salt plantings with random varietals and, you know, uh, regenerative agriculture. I mean, whatever you want to do, talk to people. Mm -hmm. uh, you, and the more you know, you have a better foundation when you put that first wine in a bottle. And, um, but yeah, do it. I mean, there's I my advice would be very, room. very different based on who it was and what their project scope was. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was people like us, you know, there's so many things, so many, and, and it's exciting. And I, I hope that we are able to help a lot of people launch their dreams, you know. Um, and I've been very, very honored to be a part of Will Hamilton starting violin and Jess Pierce starting Pierce Wines. And, and I hope to continue that. Um, yeah. You know, if it's somebody coming in with, you know, a lot of resources that are doing a much bigger project, then be very different advice, mm -hmm. you know. Yep, it would be. It would just depend. I mean, not, and I'm not saying like. No, not being. Ne in a negative way, it would just be very different advice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it just depend on who it was. And, sure. But I think, you know, yeah, I mean, working hard and surrounding yourself with this community and, and, and giving back to this community is very important. Yeah. All right. The last question I have for you is one of our favorite ones to ask. So oh what's the secret to a successful marriage in the wine industry? <laughs> oh. Whiskey during harvest. <laughs> whiskey and a beer back during harvest is a very good There one. have been shots of whiskey and going to your corners. Yeah. <laughs> that has definitely happened. No, I mean, uh, so I, supporting each other, you yeah. know, her being, you know, your own creative stuff. Cause there are certain times when, you know, like, for multiple vintages, it was her and I, I mean, she and I in 2013 pressed Chardonnay until four o'clock in the morning and she was six months pregnant doing it and we made it happen. And then, you know, now as the, the company, the business has changed a little bit, she, you know, hosting appointments and doing other stuff, but her own creative stuff and wanting to contribute to the Willamette Valley Winery Association and being on the auction committee and the marketing committee, uh, supporting your uh, partner partners. in the business in in the things that um, you know we joke, are important to them we joke about you know having x amount of single vineyard chardonnays or you know i joke around about you know ken wanting to make aligote but you know as much as it's happening as much as i want you know i want to you know streamline you know marketing side of things and and labels and things like that you also have to support the creativity and excitement that your partner has and i also on a more practical level, and I, I, I need to go and watch Claire and Brian's and see what they said to the question. <laughs> but I think that having, we have very, very different roles in this business. You know, we do, we work together every day. Yeah. And we, there are things we do together, like blending trials and finding trials and, 
we we taste and talk about picking decisions as a team and yep. there are lots of things we do as a team we work together and work for months as a team lucy gets in a in pijaja's sequitur every year when yep. it comes in um but fundamental day-to-day -day business we have very separate roles you know i have certain roles and he has certain roles and there are times when we get behind and we get stressed out in those roles and we might jump in and help each other get caught back up or or help each other figure out how to get pet caught back up but generally speaking we're not managing each other we're supporting each other yeah. and that i think is key because if, if we were both winemakers in there we would kill each other and if we were both you know i mean he has great marketing chops and i certainly have a palette that was trained to be able to contribute in his world and he can contribute in my world but we're not micromanaging each other and you know i think that's the big deal yeah, yeah respecting each other's opinions respect <laughs> respect respect is right i think I mean, you just fly by the seat of your pants and try not to fuck yeah. it up. <laughs> That's actually really good advice, too, yeah. for the last question, so I like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. for both. Yeah. yeah. That might need to be our harvest t-shirt. <laughs> Say again? Fly by the seat of your pants and don't fuck it up. Yes. Yeah. I'd buy, I'd buy one of those. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's all the questions that I have. For Thank you, okay, guys. Awesome. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover? No, I think that is everything. Yeah. We <laughs> have the, the circus behind you. It's kind of. It's all good. Yeah. No, I, it's a working winery. That's what we, we appreciate. It is definitely a working winery. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Definitely. No, I think we're good. Yeah. As far as, but thank you. Yeah. Very, for, very, very, very good questions. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews. Over